This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are in the midst of Season 8. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I also teach at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he is the Duns Scotus Professor of Spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He's also a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. And I'm also here with Heidi Schlumpf, the executive editor of National Catholic Reporter, I want to welcome them both to the show. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Heidi and Dan, it's great to be with you. How are you all doing? I'm doing great. Good to see both of you again. I'm doing all right. Uh, yeah, also good to see you both. We're plugging along in this never-ending winter. Poxitani Phil really uh, got one over on us this year. Six weeks of misery. Yeah, we down here in the south side of Chicago, we have been buried in lake effect snow, and it has been 14 inches. We have literally, my whole family got involved the other day in digging our car out from under all of this, and because I had to go to the grocery store and all of that. So it's been an interesting odyssey to try and navigate what has been really one of our first major snowstorms while we've lived here in Chicago. How have things been on the north side with you, Heidi? We got even more than you did. It was 18 inches from that one storm, but nothing like what suffering's been going on in Texas, which we're going to get to next. Yeah, it's been slow. We've been stuck inside because of the snow. There's not a lot of huge news happening that's uh, been affecting NCR. So I've been catching up on things, doing some crocheting, watching TV, enjoying my family. How about you guys? It's, it's been going fine. Um, we just had our, what we call reading week at CTU. So it's like a midterm break. So I've been grading a lot of midterms and getting things ready for the second half of our semester. As I've shared before, we started very early, right after the new year. We're almost, now actually we are halfway through the semester. We're going to talk at the end of the episode with Father Jim McDermott. And one of the things we talk about is TV. This past weekend, I watched in a binge run what I thought is one of the best TV shows I've seen in a very long time. It's called Ted Lasso, and it stars Jason Sudeikis. The one drawback is it's only available on Apple TV+. Plus. But if you have access to that or can do a free trial or something, I cannot recommend this show highly enough. It seems at first like it's going to be a sports comedy thing, but it is the most heartwarming, funny, touching wonderful show. I can't speak any more highly about it. Ted Lasso, check it out. And Heidi, you had mentioned uh, in our last episode that you've been watching some BBC procedurals and other sorts of things like that. What are you watching these days? Oh, well, I was just catching up on the last season of Endeavor, which is one of my favorite BBC mysteries. I haven't been watching All Creatures Great and Small. I think I might start that next. So I need something to binge in these cold winter days. Well, and with the mentioning of Broadchurch in our last episode, my wife and I have gone back and we've started watching the first season of Broadchurch again, and I had forgotten so much of it, and it is, there are so many really harrowing and just heart-ripping moments in that. I can't recommend that highly enough. That's a, that's a crazy show. And, and I'm looking forward to talking to uh, Father Jim about what he's been watching lately as well, because he works out in that industry at certain points, as well as being a writer for magazines. So I'm looking forward to having that portion of our show. But in addition to Father Jim, at the end of the show, we're also going to be talking about the weather down in Texas and some of those effects. And we're going to 
to be talking about the Biden administration's reconfiguration of the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives. So that's what's coming up. But for right now, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Father Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Last week, a series of strong winter storms struck the United States, resulting in more than a foot of snow in Chicago, freezing rain along the East Coast, and record-setting freezing temperatures across Texas. Notably, temperatures in cities like Dallas, Austin, and San Antonio all fell below those in Anchorage, Alaska. The frigid Texas weather increased demand for heat, which in turn caused an energy crisis across the state, which left more than 4.3 million homes and businesses without power. More than 20 people have died, and many thousands more remain without power or heat. A number of factors contributed to these disastrous circumstances, including the real-time effects of global climate change, the Texan mentality of extreme independence, which led to an isolated power grid in the state, and political failures at multiple levels across the state. Republican officials attempted to spin the crisis and blame renewable energy sources such as solar and wind for the disaster, yet the facts tell another story. But perhaps the most egregious political failure was seen by Republican Senator Ted Cruz's decision to take a family vacation to Cancun, Mexico, to avoid the consequences of the winter storms. Dan, there's a lot to unpack here. Where should we begin? To use a cliche from the novel and film, it was a perfect storm, both literally and figuratively. And I think we have to pull the threads out. And you named a bunch of these, David, and there's no sort of singular cause, right? On the one hand, we have, as the climatologists and meteorologists point out, shifting wind currents and jet stream systems are a result in part from global climate change. Some of it is natural, but it's exacerbated. And so we have these unusual cold spells. And this was, a, as you said, a record-setting cold streak in places like Texas that are just not prepared for this kind of weather. I remember in 2003, in the northeastern part of the United States along the East Coast, like New York City, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Boston, that summer we had a really terrible heat wave that led to brownouts and blackouts all around the Northeast for a similar sort of thing. We were not prepared in the Northeast to handle temperatures for multiple days on end with high humidity and temperatures over 100 degrees. And so the AC draw in people's houses and apartments and and businesses forced this sort of energy crisis. The inverse basically happened in, in Texas last week, which is a lot of energy was drawn, both electricity in terms of electric heating, as well as gas resources and that sort of thing in terms of people trying to just protect themselves and to stay safe. So it's not in any sense, I think, the people's fault as such. But then there are these intersecting issues. This isolation is that's very common in the ethos of Texas. It's a huge state. Geographically, it's a populous state. It's got a state with a history of inclinations and rhetoric around secession and this kind of stuff. And if we think about the Trump administration's catchphrase of America first, we might think of Texans with a Texas first mentality. And where that's really practical, and maybe this is a good place to begin, is that's this, that's not just rhetoric as the whole country has seen this past week. It, it results in the fact that Texas is the only state or one of the very few states in the United States. Well, I should let me correct. It is the only state in the continental 48 states of the U.S. Obviously, Alaska and Hawaii operate differently, but Texas is the only independent grid that's not connected to any neighboring states. That means when something goes down, they're down. That also means they're not contributing to their neighbors. Well, Dan and Heidi, I wanted to ask you about this because when we look back to something like the Enron scandal, there was a deregulation of the California energy grid, and that led to demand causing surge pricing. And if anybody's ridden on Uber or Lyft, this term surge pricing is when demand causes prices to skyrocket in certain localities at certain times. But we've seen energy draw for two or three days during this storm, leading to bills of like multiple thousands of dollars. I've seen some reporting that says that certain people are getting hit with five and even $10,000 electrical bills for just a couple days of draw. What are we to make of that in this situation? Well, I think that In addition to that, there's even more serious ramifications. People died because, you know, the death of an 11-year-old boy 
because of lack of heat in his home. And if this isn't a pro-life issue, I don't know what is. And the image of Ted Cruz carrying his suitcase, taking his wife and daughters off to a, a vacation over the border, ironically, and then saying he did it because he wanted to be a good dad and protect his children, which is exactly, of course, what other dads are doing when they're trying to bring their children the other direction over the border. The hypocrisy was pretty high. I don't know what all the answers are here, but I think that a lot of it comes down to, is there a role for government in our country? And our church has long said that, yes, there is a role for government, especially when we're talking about common good, things in common. You can't create your own electricity. You have to be connected to the state or in some places a national grid, or I guess some people can do some things with their own solar panels these days. So I just think it's easy for the Republicans who say, we don't need government, government doesn't work. And then when it doesn't work, they're like, see, I told you. And I think that's the wrong lesson. The, the right lesson is we need to be willing to contribute to the common good, especially for instances like this. Yeah, I think that's so key. Part of that common good, like you're talking about, Heidi, is the care for all people. That this isn't, you know, Ted Cruz, that, that what's so star startling about that, first of all, is that he's liked by virtually nobody. And I'm sure his daughters dislike him now, too, since he blamed his leaving on them, which we could talk about the patriarchy and misogyny that's involved in that sort of nonsense. But the the resistance, like you say, Heidi, in the political rhetoric of Republicans. And we're picking on Republicans, as it were, because this is a deeply red state. All of the statewide leaders are Republican. Senator Ted Cruz is a Republican. The governor and, and Lieutenant Governor Abbott and uh, Dan Patrick, they, they are Republicans. And it's interesting to see how the pressures and the sort of illogic of the national GOP rhetoric led them at first to this really stupid, superficial attempt to spin it, you know, spin this disaster and blame it on renewable energy, when in fact, that was not the primary issue. Something like, I think it's more than 89% of the state's energy comes from fossil fuels. It's a very oil-heavy, gas-heavy state. But one of the other things that strikes me too is not only do you have this isolationism, as if Texas in its electrical grid is symbolic of the desire for them to separate and be on their own at any time if they wanted to, which is, I think, part of the message. But you also have this issue of a resistance on the part of the GOP to investment in infrastructure. What is the role of the government, like you're saying, Heidi? Common good means that we have safe bridges and roads and electric grids. A big part of the problem was that the electric delivery systems in Texas were not insulated against this kind of temperature. And we see a similar thing. David, you mentioned the deregulation in California, but we also see that in recent years with the, the rolling blackouts that are necessitated because for the same reason that the power grid in California is not stable enough or safe enough to be run when there's a high risk of wildfires that these cables will not short or start, you know, ignite fire. But we have a lot of work to do. And I think this is the purpose of paying taxes. This is the purpose of collective identity. This is the purpose of supporting one another in the effort of common good. And it disappoints me that this sort of situation still, it's like school shootings, not convincing people that we need to address the crisis of guns in our, in our society. Similarly, it saddens me that people dying, including like Heidi, you mentioned that 11-year-old boy, that story broke my heart. Thinking of an 11-year-old boy freezing to death in his own home, this is so egregiously sinful. You mentioned a moment ago, Dan, that Texas is a deeply red state. I just want to complexify that for a moment. It's a gerrymandered red state. There are certain districts in Texas that are 80 miles long, these thin strips that have been sliced down. But what that tells us is we're, we're seeing an overlap between the gerrymandered control of state and national legislatures and things like the effects of climate change, the lack of infrastructure, the inability to actually respond in a way to do what government is supposed to do, all of these things we're now seeing intersect here in 2021. So access to better elections and access to more voter possibility 
ties in with climate change and ties in with infrastructure reform and ties in with kind of equitable distribution of goods and the common good. So I think Catholics should get very involved not only in trying to talk about the common good as an abstract concept, but around very concrete sorts of things like election reform and making sure that infrastructure is subject to democratic kind of oversight and control. And I don't mean I don't mean Democratic Party. I mean Democratic processes where it's not the interests of corporations, but actually the interests of people that can step in and actually say, we need this because we need to stay safe and our children need to stay safe. I think it also raises this question of not just the common good, but common goods, as you're saying, David, who quote unquote owns energy, who quote unquote owns the land, who quote unquote owns the waterway. And I think it's striking. There's a new book out on the history of land, and I can't remember the the name of the author, but it's fascinating. I, I heard an interview with the New York Times Book Review podcast in which he talks about how uniquely American this idea of individual property rights to an extreme are. And I think this also is very antithetical to our Catholic teaching. The U.S. is a unique place. And I remember back in 2015, we were uniquely situated, not exclusively, but very distinctively as resistant to the Holy Father's encyclical letter, Laudato Si, and how politicians, self-identified Catholic politicians like Marco Rubio and others, jumped in to criticize it even before it was released. And I think part of that is because we have this idea of me first, Texas first, America first, and darn to anybody else who needs assistance. It's their own damn fault, this kind of mentality, which is deeply sinful. I think it's a cooperation in evil. It's part of structural sin. And I think the role of government is to help us rise to our better selves collectively. And I don't see the kind of rhetoric or the policies coming out of the GOP, including the very gerrymandered state of Texas and the other 49, to be honest, helping much. Yeah, and we see that criticism of excessive focus on individualism and even individual property rights in the most recent encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, as well. And some people found that surprising, and it's really just been part of Catholic social teaching for quite some time. I know that I I dealt with this personally, too. Even There was a part of me when I read about Ted Cruz and about the history of what Texas what he specifically and other Texans have said about other parts of the country when they were suffering from natural disasters, whether it was people in New York after Hurricane Sandy or people in California after wildfires, I was tempted to say, hey, you're on your own here, Texans, if that's how you really want it. And I'm glad for a minute I thought that. (laughs) Then I said a prayer and was glad to see some other politicians stepping up. Obviously, the Biden administration immediately offered the federal emergency aid. And several politicians, including I saw AOC, Ocasio-Cortez, raising money for Texans and going down there to try to help. So that's what our church is calling us to do, even when we're tempted not to. That goes into the entire loving your enemies and doing good for them that persecute you kind of thing that we're taught sometimes. And really the response of New York and New York politicians to Texas is very different from the response that we saw when New York was in peril after the hurricane and states like Texas refused aid or tried to block aid to New York on a federal level. And so I think that your point, Heidi, is exactly right, that if we're prayerful about this, and if we're actually listening to our better angels, that we're drawn towards this better response. And as we're thinking about better angels, let us continue our conversation. We're going to wrap this here, but I'm sure, unfortunately, we'll have more to say about it in the coming weeks. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events, pop culture, all sorts of things, especially politics, all viewed through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. 20 years ago, President George W. Bush established the first White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. As its name suggests, the office sought to create and promote networks with faith groups, but the program also came under criticism with some accusing the Bush administration of using the office to support its political allies. In 2009, the Obama administration continued this program, but shifted the focus to include an interfaith advisory council and an emphasis on policy development. 
the Trump administration took a different approach, reconfiguring the program as the Faith and Opportunity Initiative and making its membership and focus almost exclusively that of white evangelicals. On February 14th, Valentine's Day, the Biden administration announced the reconstitution of the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives, linking this new iteration in purpose and spirit with the efforts of its predecessor in the Obama administration. This includes its key personnel, the newly named executive director, Melissa Rogers, and deputy director, Josh Dixon, both served in roles at the initiative during the Obama years. Catholics will favorably note that part of the declared mandate for the new Office of Faith-Based Initiatives, quote, will work with every willing partner to promote the common good, unquote, and goes on to note that this will include those who have differences with the administration in terms of opinion and policy. David, you know some of the members of this interfaith advisory board who served during the Obama years. What should we be expecting from this new incarnation of the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives? Yeah, thank you for that, Dan. I am acquainted with people like Tracy Blackman, the late Rachel Held Evans, Rami Nashashibi, who's here in Chicago, and also Ibu Patel, who uh, is the co-founder of the Interfaith Youth Corps here in Chicago. All of these are people that I've either interviewed or I've interacted with in various public settings, and some of them I would even call friends. And so in, in this case, I've had a chance to get a kind of view of what went on in the Interfaith Advisory Council. And the sound of it was that it was incredibly collegial and that what they were looking for was really how to marshal the power of various faith communities, not just one section of the faith community, to really work not just on culture issues, but on policy issues. And so one of the things that's interesting to me about the the current administrations, the, the Biden administration's reconstitution of this, is that in their press releases and in the things that they're saying about this new Office of Interfaith Initiatives, is that they are wanting to apply what they learn from the various faith communities towards things like infrastructure and things like COVID relief, but also things like systemic racism. Like these are explicit policy goals that the Biden administration is saying that they believe that interfaith partners can help them with. I'm very excited by this possibility because I've been saying for a long time that something that gets lost oftentimes in our civic discourse is the faith voice. And part of the reason why is because, as we saw in the Trump administration, oftentimes in America, the faith voice gets collapsed to the white evangelical voice. And so a refocus now on the interfaith aspect of this and the very plural way in which religion plays out in America, I think that to me is a very powerful and positive sign of what's going on here with this Office of Faith-Based Initiatives as it's being reconstituted under the Biden administration. Yeah, and I also had a chance to talk with Melissa Rogers recently, who is named as one of the heads of this new office, and I think she's going to be very excellent. She and E.J. Dion had done this report for the Brookings Institution that we excerpted as part of our advice to Biden for his first hundred days on the issue of the role of religion in government and about religious liberty. And the fact that not everyone is happy with her being appointed to this position might have to do with different ways of perceiving what a religious liberty will mean. So, for example, when Bill Donahue from the Catholic League doesn't like the appointment of Melissa Rogers and says it's because she's a secularist when she's a very faithful Baptist, I view that with some skepticism because I do think she's going to do a great job of both involving religion in public policy, but also knowing that religious liberty doesn't mean that we get to require everyone in the country to adopt our religious principles. Heidi, I want to circle back with that. In Dan's intro to all of this, he mentioned the fact that the Bush administration got some criticism because there was a fear of evangelical cronyism going on. I'm hearing you saying that there is some criticism of Melissa Rogers and others for kind of culture war reasons. Do you see those as similar criticisms, or do you see a kind of difference between those two types of criticism of how the Office of Interfaith Initiatives is going to operate? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I guess there is maybe a similar thread um, of overall fear that when religion gets involved in the political sphere, people tend to get nervous. And the people who get nervous are either people who are in minority groups, so for whatever reason don't share the majority view on religion, or other people who get fearful maybe are the ones who want their views to be extrapolated and be required for everybody. So 
I get that it's touchy, but I think it's still, a, in general, a positive move forward. Well, and I think, you you know, Heidi, you just touched on something really important, especially the latter concern, because I, I think that's, quite frankly, what when we see the worst of the USCCB's political engagement, as we have at the outset of the Biden administration, we see exactly that. Certain Catholic leaders are very frustrated, and, and though Donahue is a rogue, he is not affiliated officially with any diocese or the USCCB. He's not a religious. He's not a clergy person. He's not a theologian. He runs his own little kind of watch group. I've been the recipient of some of his hate mail uh, myself, but the point is simply to say that when the bishops speak sometimes, it, it's this frustration that, to your point, that the U.S. government or that our federal or state policies do not reflect the the particular kind of confessional views of the Roman Catholic moral tradition in particular. It's usually almost exclusively about sexual or biomedical ethics. And that's not the purpose. That's not how this government works. And it's despite that fact, that 200 plus year old fact, we have people who continue to insist on that, this kind of imposition of moral norms from without. And that's a form of oppression. That's a form of religious illiberty. It's not religious liberty to say that the federal government can't support certain healthcare initiatives or these other things just because the Catholic population disagrees with it. It'd be like saying if another religious tradition like the Mormon church, for instance, they as a rule, do not drink alcohol or coffee uh, or caffeine. So it's, well, I guess Starbucks should be ruled illegal across the United States or whatnot. So when you put it in, in context like that, it seems to be so stark. I, I think the other thing, too, is that people get hung up on the religious element of this. And what I, I would like to say is that, and I think this is something that Jim Wallace and the Sojourners Group has done very well over the years, which is to try to have these ecumenical and interfaith conversations that are values-focused and outcome-driven, as opposed to getting hung up on the individual confessional or denominational identities. So instead of saying, oh, religion is going to, quote-unquote, interfere with the, the role of the government, let's just say we all need to face the existential threat of global climate change. If what motivates you is your political commitments or a commitment to liberation or your commitment to following the gospel of Jesus Christ as a Christian, regardless of what that starting point is, let's work together. And I see the Office of Faith Initiatives being precisely that. Let's get people who are motivated by their faith commitment to work together for the common good. So what you're raising here, Dan, is I think a, a popular misconception about how the separation of church and state work in our country, because there's oftentimes a, a kind of perception that means that no federal agency can ever engage with, talk about, or even acknowledge that faith exists. And there is a history that involves a real kind of shaky but very real line between the ability to affirm that one particular religion is favored by the government over another and the ability to welcome religions into the public sphere. And I really see these efforts of the Biden administration and the Obama administration before it as the latter, trying to figure out a way to actually bring in religious voices into the civic conversation at the federal level in a way that is positive and that can actually affect policy without creating a kind of de facto theocratic response or a kind of theocratic situation. Well, and the pendulum swings the other way in other places. We're not the only ones who deal with this. We are the oldest constitutional democracy, representative uh, democracy as a republic. But just a few years after our revolution, our neighbors across the pond and early allies, the French, had a revolution, and they're continuing to negotiate this. Now, their situation was a state that was deeply entrenched in Christian, Catholic Christian polity and identity that goes back centuries. We see this play out with their increasing Muslim population and the kind of ethos and government protections for what they call laicite, this idea of a kind of state-sponsored secularism, which many people view as oppressive in inhibiting their ability to exercise religion. So it's complicated, and I, I have respect for how difficult this is, and I don't think we can just reduce this in any direction to the simple pieces that's people want to make it into. Well, Dan, I appreciated your framing this with the values and outcomes frame, because as someone for whom my religious faith does inform my political beliefs and decisions and votes, I certainly would never want to say that people should not be 
taking their religious faith into the public squares, so to speak. Uh, you know, our columnist Michael Sean Winters wrote about the announcement of, of the new White House office. And at the end, he included a quote from one of his friends, a uh, fellow scholar, Kathleen Caveney from Boston College. And I thought she asked this question on a webinar that I was watching last year. And really, she gets to the point when she's saying, in a religiously pluralistic and morally pluralistic country, what do we owe people who believe differently than we do? So at the same time that our religious faith is important to us and it informs our, our political beliefs and decisions and choices, we have to respect that some people believe differently than we do. I think living a life that is convincing to other people is, or trying to convince them through words is a good way to do that. Forcing them through government is probably not the best way to do that. And this idea of what we owe people whom we disagree with, that shows up in the official statements about this reconstituted office of faith-based initiatives, but it also shows up in the Gospels. And I've, I think about this again and again, what do we owe to our enemies? And by enemies, I mean those who want, in this particular case, different policy ends and different uses of government than we want. And in some cases, those are deeply religiously informed. So when we encounter people with different ideas based in their different faith about what our government should be like, this is exactly the question not only for good kind of plurality and good policy, it's also good gospel reflection. What do I, as a person who wants to be understood as a Christian, owe to the person that disagrees with me? And how do I engage with them in a way that they can see Christ in that engagement? And I don't often see that in our politics, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. Sadly, it's usually the opposite. It's so divisive, isn't it? So we will keep an eye on the developments of this Office of Faith-Based Initiatives, and as they actually begin to get involved in policy work, I'm sure that we'll have more to say. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, I get together with Dan Horan and David Dalt to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. This week, we are excited to welcome a guest to the show, Father Jim McDermott. Jim is a Jesuit priest whose Twitter handle is popculturepriest. There's no E on culture if you're looking for that. He's written for television, but also writes about TV and movies and spirituality and lots of other things like how watching TV can really help your spiritual life. We'll get to that later. Originally from the Chicago suburbs, Jim has worked as an improv comic, as an English teacher, a drama coach, and a bus driver for the Jesuits Red Cloud Indian School on the Pine Ridge Reservation. He entered the Jesuits in 1992 and was ordained in 2003. Sometime before Christmas, Jim contacted me about an article he had written about what it was like to be a gay priest to see if NCR would like to publish it. I read it and found it honest, illuminating, touching, and funny. And so, of course, I said yes. And we ran it online at ncronline.org on January 26th. And it will be in our next print edition. Jim, in that article, you write that being a priest has been tremendously rewarding, but that being a gay priest has had its costs that nobody ever says, don't talk about being gay when you're preparing to get ordained, but that it's just understood. Tell us a little more about those costs and how you've dealt with them. What effect does not talking about it have on gay priests and on the rest of the church? And welcome to the Francis Effect, by the way, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks, I really, uh, thanks for publishing the article. I'm really glad that you guys accepted it and that you liked it. Yeah, I'm a Jesuit. And so I was in the Jesuits 11 years before I got ordained. And then I've been a priest for almost 20. And in the early stage, in the kind of the formation stage, actually, I, I found and I continue to find the society to be a really welcoming place and a place where people were really encouraging about being gay or being straight. It didn't matter. And, and just affirming of you and empowering. So as I got ordained, I felt very good about my identity and kind of my place in the church. But 
And what I found was, and it wasn't right away, but that once you're a public figure in the church, you know, someone that's speaking and has some maybe small authority in the church, that there are consequences for that in terms of your own sense of identity. If you're not able to be who you are, or if you're having to self-edit, it doesn't happen. I didn't notice it right away. Like at first, it's just, oh my God, I got to get another homily together. I've got to, I've got to remember the, the words for the sacrament of confession, the rite of absolution. You know, it's the normal sort of like nitty gritty of being a priest. But over the years, I just found like, wow, I keep having to self-edit this one part out. And at first it wasn't a problem, but eventually it's like driving with the parking brake on at some point. And uh, it just grinds away at you quietly, not never dramatically. Like my, I wouldn't say my life has been riddled with crisis about it, but it's like a constant sort of thing in the background that, that starts to wear away and wear away in ways that are unexpected. So for instance... I, I live in Los Angeles. I actually went to film school here at UCLA about 10 years ago. And then I've worked a little bit in the film and TV industry. And then I've worked as a magazine writer as well. And I noticed that at every stage of my life here in Los Angeles, I kept waiting for people to reject me. Like I kept waiting for people in Hollywood to say, we can't have you. Sorry, you're a Catholic priest. And that's a real problem for X, Y, and Z reason. Not just about homosexuality, but also about issues of gender, also about pedophilia, all these sorts of things, issues of power. And, and it never happened. And that should, be, that should be a very happy story, right? That people were very open and welcoming. But I found myself saying, like, why do I think I need to be rejected? Why am I projecting that onto everyone else and that I'm frustrated when it doesn't happen? And I just began to see like, wow, there's this deep internal thing going on here where I don't trust myself. I don't like myself. I think there's something wrong with me. Father Jim, this is David, and I also want to welcome you, and, and, and I want to follow up on that. You talked about editing and self-editing, and I have many friends who are my age, and they lived through the 80s, and they lived through a time when the perception of homosexuality was not nearly as accepted as it is now. And what I've discovered for a lot of my friends is that there's this kind of multiple closeting effect that happens, where in some situations they feel very comfortable being out, in other situations they hide behind privilege or assumption. Did you find yourself in these different situations operating in that multiple closeting effect when you're talking about this self-editing, both in the Catholic and in the Los Angeles setting? Or once you made the decision to be out, were you simply out to everyone and very clear about it? And I apologize, I don't know much about your background, so if this is something that you've talked about before, I apologize for bringing this back in, but I'm I'm just very curious how you think about that question. No, it's not something I've talked about before. And I'd say, in fact, that's that sort of multiple closeting or, yeah, is, is a very apt sort of metaphor. I'd say I came into my identity as a gay man within the society. I didn't know before I entered where I was and all of that. And I think as a result of that and, and finding myself in a community that was really welcoming, where there were both gay and straight men that were very comfortable with themselves and were able to relate in a personal way and be supportive. I pretty quickly felt like I'm not in the closet because I, all these people who know me know that I'm gay. Right. And ev eventually that included my family, although not right away. Right. So there's a way in which I thought I'm not in the closet at all, but in another way, of course I was because no one like where I, none of the people I worked for or with would have known that part of myself and also would normally assume that I wasn't gay. So just like a case in point, in June, if it was around the time of pride, if I'm presiding at a mass, I might pray for people, for queer people for, as part of pride, you know, or I might even talk about it in a homily about, not about myself, but about this is a part of what's going on in our country right now or our world. And isn't it great in some sort of way? And then after mass, people would come up to me and as though I had done like, you know, like what a great guy I was, you know, you know, you know, you're speaking out on behalf of them. And I felt terrible about that. <laughs> Don't ascribe some sort of benevolence to me. I'm speaking on behalf of me as well. Like I'm a part of that group. So yeah, I, I, I would say that that question of when was I fully out of the closet? I think it's when that article got published. I sort of wanted I wanted to push myself into that in a sense that I, I feel like closeting is a constant part of the negotiation within the church. And I'm, I'm hopeful that to try to that, that this will allow me to help resist that more. 
You know, one of the nice things I appreciate, Jim, about having you with us, in addition to, you know, your openness and sharing your story and that excellent uh, piece at NCR, is that now we're even. We have two religious and two lay people. Normally, Heidi and David have me cornered, and so I'm the kind of token <laughs> religious. You know, what's religious life like? And speak from this perspective. So now I don't have to represent all of us, but I, I'll just say, if I may jump in, you know, to David's point, you know, when you talked about multiple closeting, and Jim, you're talking about these disconnects from your internal experience as a member of a religious community and a sense of welcome and hospitality and understanding and a kind of disconnect with whether it's your work and ministry externally and whatnot. I I think what a lot of listeners who are not religious may not understand is this is a daily, consistent reality across all communities of religious life. Men and women, religious communities, various sorts and I think it's something that I appreciated so much about your piece is that you shed some light on this. You invited folks who do not live this bifurcation. You know, there's, there, you know, there is. I understand, and everybody's experience is different. Who they disclose their various selves to, their identity. You know, we can talk about that in terms of coming out with sexual orientation, or about gender identity, or about many things that people disclose to different communities. And we, not everybody owes everybody their whole self all the time. But I think one of the things that I've, what you're saying that resonates with me is that it's not, I hate to use the term open secret, but there is an understanding within our religious communities, the Jesuits, the Franciscans, and so forth, by and large of recognition. Some guys are gay, some guys are straight, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's this, once you step outside of your community, whether it's in the sanctuary at mass or whether it's in your work in in LA or in the academy or in a parish or what have you, there is this unspoken presumption that you don't speak about it. Part of it, I think, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. From my perspective, part of it is just the presumption uh, on the part of, again, another larger unspoken rule, which is because of the perception of the church's in-your-face views of sexual morality and the kind of, you know, the attention-grabbing homophobia that we see, including by many of our church leaders, many bishops, there's just, you don't talk about it. Straight priests don't talk about being straight. They don't talk about sexuality other than within the context of sin. And gay priests, God forbid, don't talk about the fact that they're equally human and this is their identity and sexuality is a part of their life and so forth too. And so I think it like extends even broader, right, than just religious or priests who are gay as if it were distinct from religious or diocesan priests who are straight. I think I'm just curious about what is like the bigger picture because it seems to me like a slice of the whole pie. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I really appreciate that. I, I do feel that way. I feel that that intimacy in general is a topic that, at least when it, I think beyond the priesthood, intimacy, sexual intimacy, and just intimacy in general is a topic the church has had a lot of trouble with historically. And that it's one effect of that is that it has taught most of us, if not all of us that are priests, that's sort of territory you have to be cautious around, both in terms of what you represent publicly, but I I think it also extends internally in terms of how you think about yourself, where you allow yourself to feel those things or to negotiate those sorts of feelings, which can be feelings of attraction or it can be just the relationships that you're in. It's There's a way in which I think we're often told to like not look at that stuff or to look at it as though it's dangerous in a way. And that's really problematic. The things that you have to be afraid of they end up having power over you and warping your sensibility in other ways. So I think one thing I said in the article is, I feel like as I've gotten older, I've become more of a curmudgeon. And I celebrated that for a while. Like, yeah, I'm this prickly jerk at times. Isn't that hilarious? No, it's not hilarious for anyone. It's not hilarious for the guys I live with. And it's not fun for the people who have to interact with me. You know, Dan, I was struck by this sentence that you said about how we don't owe everyone our whole selves all the time. We don't have to be 100% transparent with everyone. And I'm juxtaposing that with what you said, Jim, about being a public figure. So you're a public figure when you uh, get up to give a homily to people in a church or online, as the case may be now. And all of us are public figures here because we do this podcast or we write publicly or edit publicly as I do. And I just was wondering, what made you think that you were ready to do the public announcing of your sexual orientation and your struggles with it? And what has been the reaction? Because as Dan noted, not everyone in our church is accepting of LGBTQ people. I think a big part actually of what made me feel like I should take that step. And I I really, I agree with Dan that I don't think we're ever 
I don't think people are, it's our responsibility always to expose all the parts of ourselves. There's so much that we're always trying to work through, right? And negotiate. For me, it was actually family. It was, I have nephews and nieces and a goddaughter who have all been growing up for the last two decades. And now a couple are in college, a couple are near college. And I started to realize as they were getting older, you know, you start to see them processing the world in a different way and that it's, it's having more of an impact on them. And I found myself thinking, God, what am I, what's my responsibility to them in a way? If I'm hiding this part of myself, then aren't I teaching them that they're probably going to need to do stuff like that too, or that there are parts of themselves that they may need to be ashamed of. And that struck me. I just became very uncomfortable with that. And it just led me to to a, a broader feeling of what is my responsibility as a public figure in the church, someone that's trusted, you know, what do I owe? And it seemed to me that hiding this part of myself, also hiding this part of myself when other queer Catholics who try to work in the church can't and are sort of come down on as a result of that, it just, that all became less and less comfortable for me. I just felt, I felt like I wasn't living up to my responsibility. Did you get any negative reaction or no? Or no? Well, so, so that's a really interesting question. I, I, I expected, I probably expected more of a negative reaction than a positive uh, and, and was totally okay with that. Like, you know, I was grateful that I had the chance to tell my story and then people can do with that what they want. But actually people have been great. And I'm sure there are people who didn't like it and won't like it, but so far, anyway, they haven't been knocking on my door. And the responses that I've gotten have been very encouraging. And people worried like, oh, God, I hope that people don't come down on you, you know, trying to protect me. And also a lot of I've had responses from a lot of gay priests who have said, you know, either it was helpful to hear someone else talk about this or sort of their own experiences of trying to be out or just trying to negotiate their identity. And that I was intimidated by that. Like, wow, I didn't, I knew I was writing about an experience that would relate that other people could relate to other, many other priests could relate to, but I, I was humbled by the trust that people have shared with me of their own sort of stories. And, and it's been very positive. I've been really grateful actually. A little earlier in the conversation, we noted that you have been working in Hollywood. You've been writing scripts for uh, kind of visual media like television and movies, or at least involved in that process. And, you know, since the 1990s, and I'm thinking about Will and Grace and some other shows like that, there's been a real sea change in terms of how queerness, homosexuality is portrayed in popular culture. And I'm wondering if you've given any thought to how priests can be leaning into that moment as the pop culture is changing. Are there ways in which priests can utilize that shift in pop culture in order to communicate differently with their congregations and to maybe bring more of a message of inclusion and uh, more of a message of welcome by utilizing some of these pop culture resources? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I certainly, I, I'm really glad you asked it. As I look at my own life journey, I'd say pop culture has been enormously important to me personally and helping me understand who I am, helping me feel more comfortable with who I am. If shows like Glee or a more recent one, Hollywood, you know, shows where it's not necessarily about homosexuality, but there, there ends up being a character who's on a journey and it might be a journey about being gay or something else, but it, it just suddenly resonates with me. In terms of the question of how religious, how priests, how sisters, how you know, anyone working as a preacher or as a minister in the church could use pop culture. I think that's the, for me, that's the beginning point is being aware that pop culture, I think, is the sacred space. It's a place where any place where stories being told is a space that, that really speaks to deep things in people. It speaks to them on the surface, but can go deeper than that as well. And so to, I mean, it can be just as simple as referring to stories that speak to you as a minister in the church or that have helped you in your life. It sort of helps you be more relatable and it gives other people places to look for their own sort of journeys. So that, that reminds me, speaking of the pop culture, and, and it's, you know, does does art reflect reality and form art, this sort of thing? It reminds me of growing up in the 90s. I was in high school in the mid-90s, and so I remember very vividly, you know, all the attention that the Ellen DeGeneres show got when, you know, when Ellen came out or her character came out and what a big deal that was and how controversial. And, and it reminds me of the parallels between what's represented in terms of visual media, and you know entertainment and pop culture 
we have a similar sort of allegory, right, with religious life or our Catholic faith, which centers on visibility. I think sometimes when you see some of the statements that some of our brother bishops or, you know, dicasteries or committees of church leaders and so forth will point out, it reminds me, and I, I apologize if this comes across as flip, but it's literally the same. It reminds me of what the the state of Iran says. You know, I remember, is it Ahmadinejad? I can't remember his name, the former, you know, uh, leader of, of Iran who claimed, we have no gays here in Iran. This is not a, this is a Western thing. There are no gays here. And there's that similar sort of nonsense in the Catholic Church, this kind of pretending like, oh, no, no. Priests aren't gay, and they, they may not even be straight. They're just non-sexual in general. That's the assumption, right? And so I'm just really moved by what you shared in terms of some of your own inspiration tied to the next generation, you know, your nieces and nephews, and also connecting that with greater visibility in popular media, popular culture, and how we really are lacking that in the church. You know, I think about the silencing, the stigmatizing that arises as a result of the lack of visibility. And so I guess one comment, which is I'm grateful for you sharing your story in such a public way because that contributes to this visibility. But then I'm also curious about what your thoughts are now, having been courageous in doing this, about how you think the church could improve this. And you talked about mentioning stories or making references to pop culture and homilies and that sort of thing. Do you have advice for bishops? clergy, religious, lay people, you know, along these lines of uh, visibility? Wow, that's a great question. I appreciate it. I feel like there's a lot there. And so if one thing I think of is, I don't know what's in the hearts of, of other of bishops or, you know, other sort of leaders, but I assume it's not that they actually don't believe that there are gay priests, but they've bought into the same arrangement that we have, which is, is don't ask, don't tell, and that you're allowed to operate and function within the church as a minister, just as long as you don't say anything about this part of yourself, which is when I was growing up in the society, that was to understand as prudence. We don't talk about this because it causes trouble, right? But it's the devil's bargain because of what it does to you and also what it does to the broader church, the way that it leaves queer Catholics alone, in a sense, you know, that they can't look to church leaders and say, there are people like me there who understand literally what I'm going through. You know, it's, it's cruel in a way toward the very, toward one of the many communities of our church that actually needs support more than others. You know, I think we're all on, on journeys, right. In our lives. And we're all trying to figure it out. It doesn't matter if we're the bishop or we're, you know, the guy in the pew, like, or we're, we're all just trying to figure it out. And in a sense, I guess, Maybe this is really naive, but I feel like part of the encouragement I have is just that that people respect the journeys they're on and the journeys that other people are on. So for a, for a bishop or a leader in the church, I'd say to pay attention to your own journey, which is not just about sexuality, but it's partially about sexuality and who you're attracted to. But that is a spiritual journey, and God is with us in every part of it. And so you we want, to, we want to take that on board and accept that. And then to see other people doing the same thing. And sometimes not doing it, maybe some of the things I write or say are fumbling attempts, but they are attempts. They are an effort to try to speak to how God has spoken in my life and how and the God I've met on the road. And so maybe it's about respect as much as it is, as it is about visibility. I don't know. I don't know if I'm answering the question as well. I, I think so. And I think, you know, one of the challenges as well that you're gesturing toward, Jim, is the internal pressure that's also faced outward. We've talked about the internal pressure. We've talked about perception externally of religious and of clergy. But I think, you know, there have been statements by bishops and by congregations in Rome that have suggested, for instance, that, you know, when it comes to the seminary, when it comes to religious life, gay men need not apply or, or lesbian women need not apply. And as I mentioned earlier with my Iran example, I mean, that's a, it's a bit ridiculous. And on the other hand, what that does is in it forces people back into the closet, right? It forces people to be repressive. It forces people to hide a part of themselves that is an organic, natural part of every functioning human person, their sexuality in whatever form God has created us with. I, I really appreciate that point. And I think it's worth noting too that though these statements have come out, they're, they're very destructive at times. They're always destructive, but at times when these statements come out, it seems to be a reaction, in my opinion, of those in leadership to try to distance themselves 
from exactly what you're talking about, you know, the kind of journeys, the differences of experience, the different kind of worldviews and ways of being in the world that, you know, quite frankly, I think a lot of those in church leadership are afraid of. They're afraid in their own lives of acknowledging. They're afraid of the reality outside themselves. And so internalized homophobia is a real thing, too. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's just worth noting, too, that, you know, we see this play out in oftentimes in the ways that the church documents and certain bishops will talk about ministry to LGBTQ folks. You know, some refuse to even use the acronym, which is insane to me, but they'll talk about, you know, gay women and men, and they'll say this horrible kind of dichotomy of, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner, as if one sexuality expressed is inherently sinful. And you never hear church leaders in the same way talk about straight women and men with the same sort of distinction. And so I think that's important, and I'm so grateful to you for connecting those things in terms of visibility, recognition, people being able to connect with that. So I think it's important for our listeners to know that they'll see statements like this that come from church leaders and from the USCCB or from dicasteries in Rome. And it's important for us to look at these with critical lenses, you know, not dismissive lenses. And I think, Jim, what you offer us is you know, a firsthand account of why this matters. Oh, thank you. I find that really helpful. I certainly, you know, when I entered the society, like I said, I didn't really know I was gay. That kind of learned that in the early years of my life in the society. So I came into the church and working in the church, being told that I was all right, you know, and being encouraged in my identity. And then as these sort of statements, like the 2005 statement come out, it's very painful and also very frightening because it feels, are they coming for me? And I have it easy. You know, I think Many diocesan priests who are queer, I think, would say, yeah, try being us, where it's very much more like any sort of sniff of that. And I could be punished in some way, whether it's being kicked out or something else, some other sort of form of punishment. And it is, for me, something really, Francis has been really helpful and hopeful. And his most recent statement just a couple months ago, which I mentioned in my article about civil unions, that the church should be able to recognize civil unions. The implications of that are enormous, both for the idea of a civil union, but also for how we understand homosexuality and whether this notion of hate the sin, love the sinner, that doesn't really make sense in light of that sort of idea of respecting civil union. So I take great comfort in him. The, the one other thing I'd say is, you know, in, in screenwriting or storytelling, when a story is boring, it usually means that they're avoiding the real stuff. Right. And that's one way I, I wish I could explain that to church leaders at times as well. Like, I can understand why they might feel anxious about sexuality. Sexuality is inherently mysterious and sometimes scary. Right. But in trying to push that down or edit part of it out, they reduce the church. They make the church less alive and less interesting. They, and that's, that can't be of the spirit. And it's, I think there's so much more life available if we embrace rather than suppress. So you've written about how TV can improve one's spiritual life. What are you watching these days, Jim, that's improving your spiritual life? Oh, that's a great question. I'm watching It's a Sin, uh, which is on HBO and is a story of sort of the AIDS crisis for, from a teenage point of view in 1980s Britain, which is uh, Russell T. Davies, who did shows like Doctor Who, Queer as Folk, Years and Years. And that's a really interesting show. It's, it's just really shocking in some ways, seeing how people were treated because they were sick. Very eye-opening in light of our own pandemic. I'm watching WandaVision. I feel like, like I'm a Marvel nerd like so many other people. I don't know what that's doing for my spiritual life, <laughs> but I certainly like it. I find it really super creative and a story about television as much as it is a TV show. I just saw Nomadland which is a new movie with starring Francis McDormand, which is on Hulu. And it's, I really love this. It's a movie about a woman who's lost her job and her husband. And she basically just moves into her van and just drives around the country, taking jobs as she can and connecting with these little communities of people. It's a really sort of contemplative story about life and poverty in the United States and yeah, I would say if I had one sort of, this is the spiritual thing that I would recommend, it would be that movie. Or Land, which I don't think is out quite yet. Land is Robin Wright in a kind of a similar situation, a woman who's lost her family and moves into a cabin in the mountains. It's a similar, just, it's these stories of isolation where in, in, the, in isolation comes empowerment 
and a new take on life. Well, thanks so much, Jim. It's delightful to have you on our show and for you to take the time, especially since the three of us are, are recording from Chicago. You're two hours earlier on the West Coast. The sun's just coming up. So thank you for the early morning conversation and blessings on your continued ministry. I'll just add before we let you go that one of the really cool things, Jim and I have known each other a little bit remotely over the years. And around this time every year, we'd bump into each other in the exhibition hall at LA Congress. And unfortunately, we can't do that this year. So it's nice to connect this way. But one of the things that Jim has done that I, I certainly recommend folks who are looking for uh, a personal, intimate celebration of the Sunday liturgy, Jim has been celebrating Eucharist and streaming it, live streaming it on his Facebook page. I commend that to you. And I thank you, Jim, for inviting us into your ministry during this pandemic. So thank you once again. It's a pleasure. Really, thank you for having me. And again, thanks for welcoming me and, and accepting the article. I really, it's been such a blessing. I'm really grateful. And for all of our listeners, we want to thank you for listening to this episode of The Francis Effect. We'll be back again with you in two weeks. For Heidi and Dan, I'm David Dalt. We're glad to be with you. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show at various locations around the Chicago area. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any institutions with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're not responsible for the content of this program either, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash Francis FX pod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Francis FX pod. That's Francis, the letters F and X and the word pod. Likewise, our website is Francis FX And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing Francis effect pod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way. E F F E C T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got more than seven seasons of episodes going back into the mists of history, all for free for your listening pleasure. Heidi, Father Dan, and I will be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. We'll look forward to being with you then. Thank you for listening. <laughs>